you probably memorized the nursery hymn, nursery rhyme, without even trying when you were young. It says, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I remember learning that rhyme from my earliest of days, and for me it was just an interesting way of speaking, and I didn't really seek to understand the meaning of it, but as I got older, I kind of looked back on it and said, said to myself, this is kind of bleak. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and no one could help him. A fellow by the name of E.M. Krishnan in a Wall Street Journal article that asked the question, Humpty Dumpty too traumatic? thinks the answer to that question is yes. He said, it is saying something cannot be fixed, cannot be repaired. This is not something you tell a child. Why should Humpty be like that? So pathetic. Let him go to the doctor and be okay. (laughs) He's also a part of an animation company that rewrites rhymes and infuses them with meaning. And it's actually in the top 25 channels visited on YouTube, this company's channel. But anyway, I thought it was interesting because here, Kristen says we shouldn't be telling kids these negative kind of things. There's someone who can fix this broken egg. And part of me wants to ask him, have you ever seen an egg that has fallen on the floor? You can't simply put that thing back together. There's no physician who has that kind of skill. And why are we trying to whitewash what happened to poor Mr. Humpty Dumpty? But as I think about this, Rhyme. I wonder if we're meant to hear an echo of another fall. I wonder if embedded in its tragic story is a lesson about human nature that we are meant to hear. And I wonder if even in that rhyme, that there's hope that is held out, that perhaps there could be someone who could come and put Humpty Dumpty together again. But no matter what we do in analyzing that hymn. There's no doubt that we live in a very broken world. Cheryl Crow, at the end of her song, If It Makes You Happy, signs off with this line. What if right now everything's wrong? That line resonates with me, and maybe it does with you, as we look at this world and, and see so much bad news in the press. I wonder if it resonates within you as you look at your own life and You see relationships that that aren't what they should be. You see broken relationships in the wake of your life. It does seem like right now everything is wrong. What we're going to call our study today the shattering. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, which was read for us. And as we get ready to jump into this text, let's just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to teach us. This text may be very familiar to you. We've looked at it before here at Mercy Hill Church. This text may be brand new to you. Whatever the case, let's, let's lean into the Lord and ask him to teach us this day. Lord, from a child's nursery rhyme, we hear of bad news. When we look around the world, we hear of bad news. It does seem like everything is, is wrong, that nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. It's not all bleak. It's not all as bad as it could be. But Lord, it leaves us longing for something better, for healing, for wholeness, for someone who can take our shattered hearts and our lives and bring healing. And so as we look at this text, for some very familiar, for some not so familiar, we pray that you would meet us here 
that you would open before us the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the scriptures open up at the very beginning, at the place where Jesus wants us to go to understand not only the story of ourselves, but the true story of the world. In fact, when he was asked one time about a controversy relating to marriage and divorce and relationships, he took those asking back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. And as we open up those chapters, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we see that God created this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, and gave them what was really a great commission, a great mandate. And that was to uh, multiply and to fill this earth, to have dominion over everything. And so from the very beginning, we get a picture of a husband and wife standing side by side to reign over God's creation together as king and queen with God. In fact, one of the things the scriptures lay out before us is this beautiful truth that we were meant to rule this world with God. Yes, God is the supreme king and the creator of all things, but in his good pleasure, he decided to create humanity and to invite us to rule this place with him. And so originally, there was harmony between humanity and God, between humanity and one another, intended to spill over to others, between humanity and the earth, and even between humanity and ourselves. We were meant to have harmony and peace with our own selves. And the scriptures use this word shalom. For some of us, this is a very familiar word. It has a broad general definition, meaning peace. But it's much more than that. It's, it's the way things are supposed to be. Harmony, prosperity, well-being, wholeness. But that shalom was shattered. And so the scriptures open up to us a story. And the very first part is this part about this wonderful creation. But then the next act introduces something more sinister. We're told, Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And someone listening to this automatically responds, Talking snakes? I mean, come on. Who believes that? Are we expected to believe something like that, living as educated 21st century people in this country? And let me just say, if, if this is a stumbling block for you, just stay tuned to the story. As the story unfolds, we're told that this entity, this talking snake, is really a fallen angel, the one who goes by the name, the Satan, the accuser. And so we just get cryptically, at first, another character introduced to the play. So let's stay with that story. He comes to the woman and says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Here, this sinister one introduces doubt. This might be the first example of gaslighting, trying to make someone question themselves, and even more than that, question what they knew God had said. And the woman responded and said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here she's echoing back to Genesis chapter 1, where God created humanity and gave them this wonderful world to live in. Placed them in what was really a garden sanctuary and told them they had access to all these trees. They may freely, freely eat from them, but there was one that was placed there that was given off limits. It was a test of their character. 
And so here she says, let me get back to where I was on here. We may eat of the fruit of the trees, but there is one that we can't even touch. Now, God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He just said you can't eat it. Is she adding here? Perhaps. But she is making it sound like God is more strict than he was. And so, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here, he introduces further doubt and suspicion into the thinking of Eve. And we could summarize it really in a form of a question. Is God really good? And can he really be trusted? My friends, this is the exact same suspicion that creeps into our minds whenever we're tempted to go our own way. I know better than God. I know what's good for me. And so in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she uh, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What I want you to see from this, my friends, is that for the first time, Eve took herself out from a position in which she lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, and now sets herself up as the ultimate authority. The way that theologians talk about this is by using the word autonomous. She became a law unto herself. She became a judge for herself. And on one side was this word of God. And the other side was this word of this serpent one. And she determined in that moment that she would decide who is telling the truth. And so we're told that she sees this fruit, that she desired it, and that she took it. And what's interesting is this is the design pattern from the opening pages of Scripture that we see actually throughout the Scriptures. You may remember the story of King David when he saw Bathsheba bathing one time and he sent his servants to take her. He desired, he saw, he desired, he took. And that pattern works itself out in the lives of us as well. James, the brother of Jesus, once said this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We see at work now in this first couple desires that are contrary to the word of God. These desires that make them act against the word of God. And so we're told that Eve took the fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate I remember reading this passage when I first became a Christian and in the years following, and I never saw what's clearly before my eyes there, that Adam was right there with her the whole time. In my mind, somehow I I just pictured that he was off somewhere else doing something, and he came back and all of a sudden found this problem on his hands, but that's not the case. He is right there when this evil one tempts his wife, and he remains silent. She hands him the forbidden fruit, and he joins her in eating. We're told in verse 7, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I can't imagine what this must have been like in this moment, to have known nothing but peace and harmony. 
and then moving upon these desires, moving against God's word. And all of a sudden, this shattering takes place. They're painfully aware that the innocence is gone, that they are naked. And before, they were perfectly uh, at peace with one another and enjoyed one another. Now, now they're scrambling to hide themselves. Later, the prophet Isaiah will say, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And this is exactly what takes place in this moment. Looking at it from another angle, sin gives us what we want, which is relational distance from God. Whenever we, we act on desires contrary to God's will for our life and God's design for our life, we put space between us and God. We suppress what we know. We invert a different version of reality than the one that truly exists. And we put distance between us. R.C. Sproul in his classic work, The Holiness of God, which if you have not read, uh, this is one of those books that I would encourage you to invest in. It was transformative in my own life as a college student. Here, Sproul says, the slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, where we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. For me, this is clarifying. I mean, on one level, all that Adam and Eve did was take forbidden fruit, and they ate. It would seem that in the grand scheme of things, that's, that's not something that huge. But in fact, it is. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority against the God who loves us, against the God who has graced us with good gifts to enjoy, the one to whom we owe everything. And then in verse 8, in the midst of hitting, uh, hiding, we're told, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? They're already scrambling to cover themselves. They put relational distance between them and God, and now they hear God coming to them. And so they hide themselves, and the Lord calls out, Where are you? And what we need to see is that this question is not a question that has God stumped. It's not like they are so good at hide and seek that God gives up and asks them where they are. This is not a question about physical geography. No. This is a question about spiritual geography. They put distance between them and God, and so God asked them the question, where are you? What a gracious question that God asked in this moment. This is what Adam said. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. My friends, we could spend hours and hours discussing that one response. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. We do that this day, each and every one of us, in our own lives. If we're honest, I would argue, hide ourselves from God and from others. Why is that? I would submit that perhaps the the greatest reason is because we fear if, if someone knew us at the core of our being, they would reject us. 
we feel it in our bones that we are not right. That we've done things that are wrong, things that we're ashamed of. If people knew us, what we were really like, then they would probably reject us. And so we hide. And that's why it's easier to talk about the weather. Why it's easier to talk about Aggie football than talk about our lives. I'm not saying the weather and Aggie football are not things to talk about. I enjoy talking about those things. There's a place for small talk in life among friends. But how many of us hide? How many of us struggle to be honest with God? When we find ourselves having failed, not only God but ourselves, why is our first impulse not to go to him immediately? Why do we hide? And so God asked the question, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What if Adam responds rightly? What if he were to say words that would be inspired and put into scripture later on by King David? Spoken by David, put into scripture, and collected in the book of Psalms. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to, the, to, to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What if that was Adam's impulse? How might the story have radically shifted in that moment? What if he knew the truth spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that in repentance and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength? What if he believed that the Lord longs to be gracious to you? He rises to show mercy to you. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What if Adam trusted the heart of his father? What if you and I trusted the heart of our heavenly father when we stray? That's not how Adam responded. He said, the the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. If these words were not contained for us in this account, we would scarcely believe that Adam would say this about his wife. He throws her under the bus. And not only that, there's a veiled accusation that that God is the one who messed up here. The woman you gave me. God, you put me in these circumstances. I had no choice. If you didn't bring that temptation before me, I wouldn't have sinned. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Again, another question. An opportunity for realization and ownership. When my kids were younger, and let's just say, I'm going to use them as an example. They didn't, I didn't tell them ahead of time I was going to do this. It just popped in my mind. But let's just say Kevin hit his brother Jason. I'm not saying that this happened, neither confirming nor denying. And Jason's wailing, and Kevin is the only other one in the room, and I come in there and I say to Kevin, what is this you have done? 
It's not like I'm so obtuse that I cannot figure out what happened just in that moment. I know exactly what has happened. The invitation is for Kevin to own it, to be broken over it, to want to see healing take place where a relationship is shattered. So what if, what if Eve cried out for mercy? What if she said, I'm, I'm sorry? What if she knew that the Father's heart is one that's full of mercy? What if she knew that God longed to comfort her in her affliction? She simply says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In an unwitting alliance that our first parents made, this first Edenic couple made with this evil one. In the midst of the the shattering that took place, we get this first hint of grace. God is going to move in and break up this alliance. He's going to put enmity where there is a new alliance formed. And we're told here that there will be one who comes, who will crush the head of the evil one, this serpent-like figure, this incarnation of evil. And yes, that serpent will strike the heel, but here's a promise, a, a hint, a faint echo, if you will, that God is gonna somehow undo the shattering that just took place. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In the reading that Jackson and Catherine did, they, they read from an updated version or edition of the English Standard Version. It's now translated in the updated version as contrary. And every interpretation, is, I'm sorry, every translation is an interpretation. The, the, the translators here are seeking to get at maybe what's going on here. But most versions translate the word as for. It's the way the ESV originally translated. The King James says, too, your desire shall be for to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Whatever the precise, proper translation of that should be, let's, let's dial in on those words, he shall rule over you. Something has taken place. There's now a shattering that has occurred. And one of the effects of this shattering is that the husband will now rule over the wife. How are we meant to hear this? Remember what happened at the beginning. From the beginning, the picture is of a husband and wife standing shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand to reign over God's creation together. But now part of the shattering that takes place is that he will rule over you. And oftentimes it's been the the case throughout history that men in, in this union have spoken unkind words, have been abusive, 
have ruled with evil intent. And if I could just echo the words of Jesus, from the beginning it was not so. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of, your, uh, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring uh, forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, in the opening of the story, our first parents were told that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And maybe we're meant to hear a stay of execution. We do know that they began to die spiritually in that moment when they took that fruit. But ultimately, death reigns in the wake of what happened. And here Adam is told that he too, will return to dust. What happened if Adam never did this? What if he and his wife never did this? Would they live forever? I think so. We're certainly told that in the new heavens and new earth, those who receive the gift of forgiveness are welcomed into God's kingdom and are given eternal life. But for now in this story, it's bad. They will return to dust. Verse 20. Man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember, they had been frantically, desperately trying to clothe themselves. And now here's, here's perhaps another element of grace in this story. God moves to clothe them. Nevertheless, there's a shattering that's taken place. And we're told in verse 22... Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, that is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What a tragic fall. What a shattering of everything that was good and noble and precious. What a vandalism of God's shalom. And so as the story unfolds, we see what is called this rebellion. It's typically called the fall. I like to think of it as the shattering that took place. And now nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. Relationship with God has been disrupted with one another. It's going to play out in their progeny. The earth is now set at enmity. Human, humans are not at peace with even the environment, and certainly not as ourselves. But as that story hints, there is one who will come. The serpent crusher, we might put it. And so there's hope. So at this point, let's just pause and summarize kind of the main thrust of our, our lesson today. The fall of humanity in rebellion against God shattered everything so that nothing is the way it was designed to be, including and especially our relationships. It's a tragic story. And so just a couple points of application. The first one is this. Let's accurately diagnose the human condition. 
the problem with humanity is not that we are lacking a good education. Some of the best educated people have committed some of the worst acts of evil. Education is not the solution. Politicians are not the solution. This shattering is beyond the skill of human hands to fix. And that's why we need to get comfortable with the language the Bible uses itself. The word sin. I know it's not a pleasant word. I know we don't like to talk about it unless we put it in a category like of a dessert that's sinfully delicious. But the word sin communicates something. It communicates a fracturing that took place. It communicates an aim of our life that is off center. And so the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Jewish people have sinned. The non-Jewish people have sinned. Old, young, rich, poor, males and females, everyone has fallen in the wake of the great fall of Adam and Eve. And what's worse, we endorse and ratify their decision every time we go our own way. The legendary John Stott, the Anglican minister who passed away recently, said this, Like salvation, sin is a word that belongs to the traditional Christian vocabulary. I'm not a sinner, people often say, because they seem to be associating sin with specific and rather sensational misdeeds, like murder, adultery, and theft. But sin has a much wider connotation than that. What the Bible means by sin is primarily self-centeredness. For God's two great commandments are first, that we love him with all our being, and secondly, that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Sin, then, is the reversal of this order. It has put ourselves first, our neighbor next when it suits our convenience, and God somewhere in the background. In the wake of, a fall, of the fall of humanity, there's a great disordering of our loves so that we love ourselves first and, and foremost. That's why theologians talk about this conception of humanity curved in on itself. Instead of being curved out, where we think first of God and our neighbor, we're, we're now curved in, and we seek primarily our own interest. Instead of using things to love people, we use people because we love things. Everything is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, would talk about how people are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. My friends, just like that nursery rhyme is bleak in its diagnosis of what happened to Humpty Dumpty, so the scriptures are bleak in terms of its diagnosis about the human condition. There is a shattering that's taken place, and everything is disordered. And so we can maybe put it like this. Given the shattering of our humanity in the fall, we should expect to find within ourselves disordered loves and desires. We are born this way. We don't love like we were meant to love. And we have desires. Eve had that desire for what God had forbidden. We have desires within us for things that are forbidden. Nevertheless, we carve out our own way. Our culture puts it like this. You should define yourself. And defining yourself means expressing yourself. You do you. Cheryl Crow again things. If it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. The follow-up line to that says something to the effect. 
then why are you so sad? Humanity now is in this situation that it finds itself in, having been shattered with disordered loves and disordered desires, clinging for something to make them happy. For, for us, we cling to anything and everything, seeking happiness, and it's not there because happiness is only found in God. The Apostle Paul, in his magnum opus, Book of Romans, opens that book in chapter 1, talking about this issue. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Paul, as he thinks through these categories that we're given to think through in Scripture, looks at humanity as a whole. And he says, not only is everyone fallen, but we suppress reality. We take what is rightfully due to God, our loyalty, the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration, and we place that upon created things. And it goes so far that we're even willing to misuse our bodies against designs that God had not intended. And here Paul says we, we will go so far as to even degrade our bodies with one another. Christopher West, a writer and theologian in his book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, says, we are free in a sense to do whatever we want with our bodies. However, we're not free to determine what we do with, whether what we do with our bodies is good or evil. Let me say that again since I stumbled. We are free in a sense to do whatever we want with our bodies. However, we're not free to determine whether what we do with our bodies is good or evil. And so we should, we should come to a realization that the prophet Isaiah came to when he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Having received a glimpse of the holiness of God, he's all of a sudden desperately aware that things are wrong. That he is a man of unclean lips, he dwells among a people of unclean lips, and so he says, woe is me. This is a prophetic language of, of calling a curse down upon himself, and the reason, for I am undone. That word, undone, diagnoses the shattering that has taken place. What was once done, complete, when whole, has now become undone, incomplete, unwhole. A great shattering has taken place. So to diagnose ourselves accurately, my friends, is to come to the Scripture's honest diagnosis that all of us have sinned. And so we should be taken to the point where we say, I am undone. I am I'm shattered. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. As I thought about this poem this week, I thought not only is it tragic, but the thought occurred to me, there's actually a hint of hope. If all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again, 
What if the king himself came? I don't know if that was in the mind of the original author, but it is an intriguing thought, isn't it? So here's a second point of application. Let's believe the good news of the king who comes with healing in his hands. When we rightly diagnose the human condition, we're in a perfect position to hear about the king who has come with healing in his hands. Jesus one time said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again, when there's no one like E.M. Krishnan hoped for that could serve as a physician to Humpty Dumpty, there is one who now comes with the audacity, with the bold claim to say that he can bring healing, that he can put back together what has been shattered. But here's the thing. He himself would be shattered by the effects of sin too. Not because he himself committed sin, We're told that he committed no sin. But when he died in this conspiracy between religious leaders and the Roman authorities, we're told in the scriptures that God was working in those scenes to place the sins of people like you and me upon Jesus so that he can condemn sin in the flesh. We're told in these beautiful words of Isaiah the prophet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. Shalom. And with his wounds we are healed. My friends, if if you put these two things together, our great shattering, and understand that great diagnosis of Scripture that we have sinned against God, then we need to put that together with the good news of the one who has come, the great physician who himself allowed the plague of human sin to affect him. And he died that death for us and rose again. And when that happens, we are blown away by grace. When we believe it, when we lean into it, it changes us. And it changes everything about us. Paul himself said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Christ Jesus has made me his own. The great physician has come for me. He has come for healing in my life. And he loved me. And gave himself for me. And now I belong to him. No one else could help. There is no physician who could begin to put me back together. But there is one great physician who delights to do this very thing. We sang earlier in our service. Released from my my chains. I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt. And he called me his friend. When death was arrested. And my life began. Oh, your grace, so free, washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. See, my friends, when we adjoin with those first primal parents in their alliance with the evil one, God steps in to break up that enmity or that relationship and put enmity between it. And now, to those of us who have called ourselves, put ourselves in a position of being an enemy with God, He now comes to us and calls us His friends. What grace that is! What beauty! What preciousness! And so, could we define ourselves by that one who loved us so much? Brendan Manning, 
the late writer put it like this, define yourself radically as one loved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. And no matter how many sons and daughters of Adam and Eve run around seeking identities, looking for happiness, let this one be the, the, the true identity that grips you at the core of your being, that you are deeply loved by a God who gave his son to heal your deepest wound, the shattering of your soul, and to bring you back into relationship with him. So here's the last point. Let's offer back to God the life that we owe to him. He's come on a rescue mission for us. He's begun that process of healing, which will finally take place in the renewal of all things. So let's now give back the life that we owe to him. As we do sometimes, we quote from this passage in the book of Romans. Well, the apostle says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so the story begins to flesh out. What began as a great story got off the rails and the rebellion and the shattering. And yet God sent his son to crush the head of that evil one, to bring us back into relationship with him. And just like he begins to heal us and restore us and to do so for that coming kingdom, there's a day when that kingdom will arrive and restoration and wholeness and victory and peace and shalom will be completed. We turn to the end of the Bible. We're told these words. No longer will there be anything accursed. Remember what God said to Adam? Cursed is the ground. How many bore the curse? But because the Son of God came to bear that curse, there will come a time when nothing will be a curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That is in the new creation. And his servants will worship him. And they will reign forever and ever. What God intended to happen with our first parents, that they would reign forever and ever. We are now brought into that beautiful place. And the renewal of all things where you and I get to rule forever and ever in the peaceable kingdom of God, the kingdom of Shalom.